following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. So if you could please stand one more time as we look to God's Word. Ephesians 6, I'll be reading from verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf as well, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would bring understanding from your word. We do ask that you would give us spiritual insight into what you have said through your servant Paul. And Lord, give us the strength, enable us to be able to live out these truths. I do thank you too for Marty and Pat and just their commitment, Lord, to proclaim your message of truth, Lord, to, to your people, Lord, those whom you had chosen to be instruments to bring the salvation to the Gentiles and to all nations. And I thank you, Lord, for Marty and Pat's desire to see, um, Lord, to see them come to know Christ as Messiah. And Lord, just want to continue to pray for them, pray for this ministry that they're embarking on with the Christian hockey camps and, and Lord, just all that they are involved with and for the many other missionaries, God, that are a part of this church whom we support and pray for. I ask, God, that you would use them in their various places to advance your kingdom. Pray all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> now, this is the, the third time We've looked at these verses here in Ephesians 6. So I'm kind of assuming that you are familiar with them, at least familiar enough for a couple of quiz questions, all right? So one thing I want to ask you is, what, what is the key theme of this passage? What is it centered upon? What is its focus? The armor of God, right? And the commands to put it on, to stand firm in it. As clearly seen, we see Paul, twice he commands, put on the armor of God, take up the armor of God. He says we need the armor on and to, and to be able to stand against the, the devil's schemes. We need to have the armor on, he also adds, so that we may resist in the evil day. And then he spends several verses describing the armor in detail and the various pieces of that armor. Clearly the focus here in this text is on the armor of God because why? Why do we need the armor of God on? For looks? Right? We're in a battle, right? We're in spiritual combat. 
we face a powerful enemy. And as in any battle, the more effective the armor, the greater the chance of survival. And as I was studying this text this week, uh, what came to mind is my trip to the USS Constitution. It's harbored out in Boston. Anyone been there? Anyone seen that? A few of you? It is a cool ship. We really uh, enjoyed our trip over there a couple of years ago. It was first launched in 1797. And it's currently the oldest commissioned naval vessel in the world. It is still a part of the U.S. Navy. Uh, In fact, last August it sailed in commemoration of the 200th anniversary of its victory over the British frigate HMS Guerriere during the War of 1812. And it was actually in that battle where as the British cannonballs were bouncing off of the hull of the USS Constitution, one of the crew members yelled out, Her sides are made of iron! And so it got the nickname, Old Ironsides. And the interesting thing about that fact is that the ship, though it's named Old Ironsides, doesn't have metal around its hull. There's a copper plating on the bottom, which Paul Revere provided for, by the way. But uh, along the side of the ship, it's, 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 it's uh, wood, primarily a southern live oak that was uh, cut from trees on an island in Georgia. And it turns out that this oak is incredibly hard. So hard, in fact, it's, it's hard enough to negate the damage from enemy cannonballs. Just a couple of years later, after the battle with the HMS Guerriere, the old Ironsides simultaneously took on two British warships. And in that battle, the British warships suffered severe damage and were defeated. But the Constitution suffered minimal damage. And as she was being uh, repaired and cleaned up later on, they noticed 12 32-pound British cannonballs embedded in her hull. They did not penetrate. It's pretty amazing, pretty amazing ship. And because of these victories, old Ironsides served notice to the powerful British Navy that she was no longer the top dog in the waters, that they were no longer invincible. And it was all because of the strong armor which protected that ship. In the same way, we too have access to a strong armor, an armor that is able to repel the cannonballs of the enemy. But to be able to stand firm in the battle, we must understand that armor and we must know how to put it on, how to apply it. And so here this morning, we're going to look in this passage at uh, three aspects. One is the need for the armor, to remind ourselves of that. Secondly, to look at the importance of the armor and then to get to the specifics about the armor. First, let's look at the need for the armor. This passage uh, in Ephesians 6 isn't the only place that Paul describes or talks about the Christian life with this idea of, of warfare or being in a war. He said in 2 Timothy 2, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul says, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. These passages are several examples where Paul tells us that along with Ephesians 6, we are in a conflict, but that conflict is not with a, with a physical enemy, right? But a powerful spiritual enemy. One, again, whom Peter described as roaming about as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Again, the scripture calls him the adversary, the slanderer, the deceiver, the tempter, the evil one. As we sang earlier in Martin Luther's song, where he described uh, Satan as a powerful, the most powerful of foes. In fact, he was the mightiest 
among angels, more powerful than any other created being. This enemy is not encumbered with the same physical needs that you and I have of sleep and food and water. He's had thousands of years to study how best to attack, how to exploit our weaknesses. And so we must have the armor on, for it is the only armor strong enough to repel those attacks. And we talked a lot about our enemy. We've talked a lot about how powerful he is, how dangerous he is. And though Satan is a formidable foe, we need to remember something. We need to also understand a few other things about him. Just as, again, Martin Luther pointed out that, that with a word he will be felled. First, we need to remember that Satan is a defeated enemy. Again, Hebrews 2.14, it says that Christ's death on the cross rendered Satan powerless. That is, made ineffective. Made him ineffective. 1 John 3.8 says the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, Satan is called the God of this world, but we have to remember that is a stolen title. He didn't earn it. God has allowed him some influence. He has given him some authority, but we have to be reminded he's lost the war. Secondly, you must remember that though Satan is powerful, he is not all-powerful. He's not able to do anything that he wants to do. He doesn't have the power or the ability to do that. He didn't create the universe. He is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not all-wise. He's not infinite. Right? There's only one almighty, eternal, infinite, omniscient, all-powerful God, right? There's only one who has made this world, and there's only one who sustains it. In fact, Satan's power is a derived power. He doesn't generate his power on his own. He is not self-sufficient. He is not independent. He's a created being, just like you and me. And as a created being, just as you and me, we require to be sustained by God. We cannot survive without God sustaining us. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. All things, all animals, all creatures, all life, all people, all atoms, all energy, all forces, all angels, all demons. Even Satan himself is dependent on God to sustain him. Nothing can exist apart from God's sustaining power. Nothing at all. And as such, thirdly, we have to remember that Satan is subject to God's sovereign will. Not only can Satan not do whatever he wants to do, he doesn't have the power to do anything, he's also not able to do... Uh, well, how can I word this? He's not uh, always able to do... How can I word it? Uh, help me out here. Even the power that he has, he's not always able to yield or exert that power. Does that make sense? Probably not. Sorry, that's my fault. But let me give an example. For example, Job, Right? Those of you familiar with his story, remember that Satan could not carry out any attack against Job until God gave him permission. And remember, when Satan did attack, he stayed within the constraints of what God told him he could and could not do. Or you remember the the demons and the pigs, right? That whole incident where Jesus uh, cast out the demons named Legion because there were many. And you remember when they went into the pigs, they had to ask permission to go. They couldn't just take off and go wherever they want. Or in Matthew 4, when Jesus had enough of Satan's temptations, he said, leave now. And Satan laughed. See, that's clearly evidence that Satan is under the submission of God. Satan is powerful, though. He can inflict much damage. But as Martin Luther said, remember, the devil is God's devil. 
What he meant by that is Satan does not have the power or the authority to do whatever he wants, but he is subject to God's sovereign plan, God's will. And that brings up a question. Some may ask, well, if that's the case, if he's a defeated enemy, if he is subject to God's control, why does God allow him to continue to roam about and deceive? Why does he allow him to afflict and tempt God's saints? As William Grinnell said, this indeed is love and wisdom in a riddle. We know ultimately that God uses all things for what? His glory are good, right? Anything that happens. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul described again, remember his, his bout with the tormentor, a messenger from Satan, and he said that he prayed three times that God would deliver him from this torment. And God said, no. God said, no. And then Paul realized how God was using even this messenger from Satan in his own life. He said how God had used him to bring him humility and how God had used this tormentor as well to show the power and glory of Christ Jesus through Paul, that that his weakness would be used for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 5, it was the man who Paul said to have delivered over, the man who was unrepentant immorality. He said, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Very interesting. We see here, and Paul recognized the fact that Satan can even be used to bring about repentance, which is not his goal, but God can use him in that way. In fact, did you realize or do you recognize the fact that Satan had a hand in your salvation? When he entered Judas to betray the Lord Jesus Christ and eventually it led to his crucifixion. It's amazing to think about the fact that God used Satan himself to bring about his own destruction as the Son of God hung upon that cross and defeated Satan. God will allow evil spirits to tempt us. He will allow the enemy to afflict us and bring trials and difficulties, but he's going to use it to bring himself glory and to bring about your good. Because, you know, what, what do we typically do when trials come? Or what should we do? right? Run to God, right? Depend on Him. Abide in Him. Seek Him. Pray, right? These trials and difficulties tend to bring that about in us if we will let them. Isn't that the place to be? So God can use even an enemy whose goal and desire is to see you destroyed and defeated. He can still use those attacks to bring about good in your life, to draw you near to Christ. So Satan is limited. He is under God's command. But remember that though he is a defeated foe, he is still a dangerous foe. Even though the lion may be in the cage, I'm not going to stick my hand through the bars. We have to be careful. We have to be cautious. And that's why Paul says you need to put on the full armor of God to defend yourself in Satan's attacks. And that takes us to the second point, the importance of the armor. As we saw last week, we looked at several different texts. We saw how Peter... And Paul and James were all agreed on how we should respond to Satan's attacks. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. First Peter 5, 8, he says, resist him, strong in faith. And Paul here in Ephesians 6 says to stand firm, to resist his attacks. And again, that word resist has the idea of to stand firm against, to hold your ground, to take a strong defensive stance and not let the enemy advance. 
And here in verses 10 through 14 of Ephesians 6, Paul gives four commands and how we are to stand firm. The first command, again, is to be strengthened in the Lord. That command is given in the present tense, which means the idea or the emphasis is to make it a habit of finding your strength in Christ. Be continually abiding in Him, in prayer, in the Word, in fellowship with believers. And while that command is in the present tense, the next three commands, the commands to put on the armor, take up the armor, and stand firm are all in the aorist tense in Greek. They're, they're different. The, the aorist is often uh, depicted as a, and tra- usually translated as a past tense. It's often depicted as a completed event. But really the, that tense focuses not primarily on time, but on how to view a situation, on how to look at it as a whole. For example, then, when we consider the heiress use as an imperative, as a command, the idea isn't a continuous action. The idea is there's a sense of urgency, of immediacy. This is something that needs to happen right away. Communicates the significance of doing the command. It says, hey, this is so vital, you need to drop everything you're doing and do this right now. Paul expresses the urgency here and in, in changing the, the verb tense and making it aorist and, and expressing the emphasis. And he also shows it by repeating the command. Put on the armor. Take up the armor. And in verse 14, stand firm by putting on the armor. The battle is so fierce. The enemy is so relentless. The stakes are so high that Paul is saying here, we must put our armor on now. Don't wait another moment. We must realize then the implications if we do delay. What if we do not actively put our armor on? What if we neglect to give that attention? When we do that, we wrong three individuals. We wrong God, we wrong others, and we wrong ourselves. Because again, this armor isn't just for your protection. We're a body, right? We're one body. We're unified we're to be uh we're interconnected as paul talked about earlier in ephesians 2 we are also in fellowship with god and we represent him and so when we do not put god's armor on we wrong god without the armor we readily fall into the enemy's trap and we sin and remember when a believer sins it cuts deeper into the heart of god than when an unbeliever does Because for the believer, we know that God has graciously offered and sacrificed His own Son so that we might be forgiven. And that God has graciously given us armor so that we may be protected against the schemes of the evil one. But when we neglect to put that armor on, when we don't give it the attention that it deserves, that's like we're carelessly thrusting the Father's gift onto the ground, saying it's not important and necessary, insufficient To paraphrase again, William Grinnell, he said this, How could you fall when you were so well equipped to withstand? Have you been eating the devil's treats when you have a key to God's bountiful cupboard? Are your father's provisions so meager that the devil's scraps sit well with you? You see, our sin doesn't just reflect on us. It also reflects on our father because it tells the world that God isn't enough. It tells the world that sin is a a fine and wonderful delicacy. It tells the world that Jesus doesn't satisfy. Remember what Nathan told David when he confronted him about his sins of adultery and murder. And he told David, he says, Because of you, David, the enemies of God have been occasioned, have an occasion to blaspheme. We exist to bring God what? Glory, right? 
But when we are defeated because we didn't have our armor on, then what God intended to be an instrument for His glory becomes an object of His shame. We don't want to do that. And not only, when, if we, not only do we wrong God when we don't put our armor on, we also wrong one another. Remember, Ephesians, again, describes us as a body intricately connected together. And what happens to one part of a body affects the rest, right? We know that just in a physical sense. When one part of our body is sick or hurt, a soldier without his protective gear on puts others in his unit at risk because now he is more susceptible to getting wounded or injured, which would mean that others would have to come around him to give him aid. In the same way, when you don't put your armor on and you take a hit, you now distract or possibly even endanger a fellow believer who must now step aside to help you. Brothers and sisters, Satan is looking for weak points in this church. He wants to exploit them. He wants to exploit them. You remember the, uh, uh, in The Hobbit, right? Smaug, and he had that one area in his armor that was open, and he was taken down. That powerful being was taken down because his armor was exposed. If you're not prepared for Satan's attack, you will bring harm to those around you as well. But when you are armed, and when you are prepared for battle, you can help others. So put on your armor for God's sake. Put it on for the sake of others and put it on for your own sake. Being unarmed for this battle invites great injury, right? If we are not armed, we are weakened as temptation comes. We are, our, our, our ability to withstand and, and fight against false teaching becomes lessened. Our resolve to flee temptation and trial dwindles. David was one such example again. The same man, remember, when he cut off a part of King Saul's robe? You remember the guilt and the conviction he had after doing that? It's that same guy who had not a twinge of conviction when he looked upon Bathsheba and took her into his bed. And he did that because not only had he set his physical armor aside and did not go into battle with his army, but he had also set his spiritual armor down and was susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. And if you read his story from 2 Samuel 12 and on, we can see the, the, the terrible amount of damage that David brought upon himself. Don't go down his road by neglecting the armor of God. Yes, Christ, Christ has won the ultimate victory at the cross. And he will secure and complete that victory upon his return. But until then, we have to remain on the alert and we have to be wrapped in God's armor. And though Satan can never take you from God's hand, he can never take the eternal life, the promise of eternal life from you that God has given. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. But Satan can make you ineffective. He can steal your joy. He can diminish your reward. He can affect your intimacy with God. And so we need to ensure that we are putting ourselves in his armor so that we can be, again, instruments for God's glory and not objects of his shame. So Paul says, this is a serious matter, so put it on. Get it on yourself now. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. No excuses. Do it. Do it. It's that Nike ad, right? Do it. Just do it. But before looking at the details of this armor, we are going to get there, by the way. We will eventually get there. Uh, There's one more thing. There's a couple of things I want us to notice, too, from this passage, particularly in verses 10 to 13. Notice, first, that it is the armor of God. We have to be reminded that it is God who divinely and enables and empowers us. Just as he says in verse 10, be strengthened in the Lord, be strengthened in Christ. 
You can't put this armor on if you're not walking with him, if you're not yielded to the spirit's control. And notice, too, that he says not only is it God's armor, but put on the full armor of God. Every piece of it, all of it needs to be on you. You need to be equipped with every piece of armor. It's not like there's one that is of greater value or use than the others. And once you put that one on, you don't have to worry about the rest. Right? That'd be like the soldier putting his helmet on. I've got enough. My head's protected. Let's go, buddy. Right? doesn't work that way. We need the full armor of God. Notice, too, that it is... Though this is God's divinely empowered armor, we must put it on. We're commanded, right? He's not saying, okay, sit and wait for God to put the armor on you. You need to do that. You need to take it up, lift it up and put it on your person. You need to clothe yourself in these pieces of armor. It doesn't magically appear by a simple prayer. Though prayer is important, it is vital in spiritual warfare. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But notice, Paul didn't command us to pray the armor on. He says, put the armor on. God does provide the armor. He does enable us to use it. But we have to put the effort in to apply it. And we should expect this because this is how the Christian life works, right? This is how sanctification works. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation for God is at work in you. Work out your salvation for Pause, silence. (laughs) Come on, right? Work out your salvation for what? God is at work in you. It's a both-end proposition, right? In your pursuit of holiness, you have to take action. You have to pursue things. You have to take initiative. You have to make effort. And at the same time, we recognize God is the one working in us. It's not one or the other. It's both together. This is how it works in our salvation, right? In John 6... Jesus talked about the fact that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. But then, not, not moments after that, he says that basically whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Again, we see we must respond in repentance and faith in order to be saved. And at the same time, the Father must be drawing us for us to be saved. They work together. They're interconnected. This is how the, the gifts of the Spirit work. First Peter 4 talks about that, where Peter says that we've been given a, a gift of the Spirit, something we didn't earn, something we didn't work for, something we didn't train to have. He says, you've been given it to It's been given to you. And then he turns right around and says, therefore, employ it. You need to use it to serve one another. You see the point? God is the one that enables. He is the one who strengthens. He is the one who empowers. And at the same time, we're responsible to act. It's the same with the armor of God. And we see this grammatically even in verse 14 where where you can notice there there's the main verb right at the beginning of the verse, stand firm, that command. That's the the main verb that governs the whole section there. But then after that we see these participles, these verbal ideas, having girded your loins, having put up on the breastplate, having shod your feet, taking up the shield. These are all uh, verbal ideas and actions that are subordinate to the main verb. And what their function is, they're in the same tense as the main verb to show that these are the way in which you stand firm. Stand firm by having your armor put on. Stand firm by girding your loins with truth. By putting on the breastplate of righteousness. By taking up the shield of faith. Again, this is the idea of the action that needs to take place. We don't just stand there and hope it will happen, but we have to actively be putting on the armor just as a soldier does. He doesn't wake up, sit up in his bunk, and all of a sudden, the armor attaches to him. 
He has to go put that armor on. Paul understands how important this is, and that's why he stresses the need and the urgency for us to do it. So we've looked at the urgency, the importance of the armor, the need for the armor. Let's now move into the specifics about the armor. Paul used the armor as a word picture, the armor of a soldier. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us at all, because if there's anything Paul was familiar with, it was the Roman soldier. In fact, think about the situation. He's there writing this letter to the Ephesians. He's coming towards the end of the letter. He's thinking about, I want to make sure they understand they have instruction regarding facing this great enemy, the evil one. And and he's thinking, how can I communicate this? And who's probably standing right there? Probably, or at least he often was chained to one. And so he's, ah, perfect. This exactly fits how I can communicate this truth and do it in a form that will be memorable and understandable. We're in this battle. What better picture than of needing to have the defensive armor on to fight in that battle? And so he walks through these various principles and communicates them in the form of pieces of spiritual armor that we need to put on. We're in a spiritual battle, and so we need spiritual armor to fight it. I think Paul was probably also influenced by uh, the prophet Isaiah, who in a few places in the book of Isaiah used uh, this idea of armor in regards to uh, communicating some truths. Isaiah 11.5, and speaking of the Messiah, said this, that righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Or in Isaiah 59.17, when God delivered, I was talking about delivering his people and judging the the people's enemies. He said that God put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And again, Ephesians 6 isn't the only place that Paul talks about spiritual armor or spiritual weaponry in regards to the Christian life. Again, back in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he called them to stay alert by putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet the hope of salvation. In Romans thirteen twelve, he talks about laying aside the deeds of darkness and putting on the armor, or more specifically, the weapon of light. Or in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful. And again here in Ephesians 6, Paul then describes this spiritual armor in more detail and more pieces of that armor. The first piece of armor is found in the phrase, having girded your loins with truth. That verb, having girded, has the idea of girdling or binding. Here it's the binding of something around the soldier's waist area because underneath that armor, soldiers wore tunics. They wore dresses, essentially. They went down to their knees and they would hang loosely. And so before going into battle and before having the armor on, that all needed to be tucked in and tightened so that it fit firmly around the soldier and would not become a potential hindrance or weakness in battle. In spiritual warfare, we are to prepare for action by fastening or girding ourselves with what? With truth. With truth. The question is, what is Paul referring to there? Is he talking about objective truth? Truth from the scripture, the word of God, the gospel? Or is it more the subjective idea, the uh, ethical behavior, the uh, a person's honesty, their faithful character, their integrity? The word can mean both. It can go either direction. Somebody's cheating and listen first service but it can go either way now first thing we do if we come across a word or phrase in a, in a book the best thing to do is look around and see how else did the author use that phrase or word so if we do that in ephesians what we find out is paul used it both ways ephesians 1 13 he said after listening to the message of truth that is the gospel of your salvation so there clearly is referring to objective 
the objective truth of the gospel. Or in Ephesians 4.21, he says that you've been taught just as truth is in Jesus. Again, a reference to the gospel and objective truth. But then just a few verses later in Ephesians 4.25, Paul says there to speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Do not lie to one another. So there he's talking about character, behavior, a person's honesty and integrity in their speech. And then in 5.9, Paul says that believers are light in the Lord. He goes on to say, and the fruit of the light consists in all righteousness and goodness and truth. Those words all express a believer's character, their behavior. So again, which is it? Is it objective truth of God's word, his gospel, or is it the subjective character of the person? And it's an important individual, uh, individual, important question, whether or not it's something regarded to my individual behavior or not, because it affects not only what Paul means here by truth, but also the other pieces of the armor, the breastplate of righteousness. Which righteousness is he talking about? The righteousness of Christ or my righteousness, my behavior, my good works, the shield of faith. Is it God's or mine? Do these refer to ethical behavior or do they refer to what has happened at salvation and appropriating them? Are they something that I must pursue or something that I already have? Okay, we're still stuck here a little bit. Again, to look at any question in the scripture, if we're trying to focus and understand a particular statement or verse, what is the chief rule of interpretation? What do we need to remember? Very good. Jack did well. Yes, context, right? Which means what? What has the author been talking about? What does he talk about before and after? What has been the focus? What is the flow of thought? I love the analogy Jack would often use in regards to this, where he talk about the fact that the passage you're at is kind of like a bridge over a river. And if you look at one side, the river's flowing one direction. What direction would we expect the other side to have the water flowing? No, not another direction. <laughs> Harry Cork at it again. No, right? It's going to flow the same. <laughs> you're on the Internet now. Um, it flows the same direction, right? So that verse isn't going to mean something totally different than what the author's been talking about. And if we think about Ephesians, remember, it's basically broken into two sections, right? The first half of the letter to the Ephesians focuses on what? Do you remember? It's been a long time, I know. Right? God's work in us, his work in our salvation, who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. And then in the last three chapters, it is the response to that work. Right? Ephesians 4.1, uh, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So, and then from Ephesians 4.1 all the way to present in chapter 6, he's given us command after command, instruction after instruction on what we are to do because of who we are in Christ. The focus is on our action. The focus is on our response, what God expects from us. So when we're thinking about these pieces of armor, of truth, of, of righteousness, of faith, They primarily refer to here in this section to our ethical behavior, to our responsibility, to what we are called to do in response to God's salvation. We see this not only in the context here, but also in the other passages that talk about our spiritual armor or that talk about how we are to engage with the evil one. Again, 1 Thessalonians 8, the breastplate of love and faith, the helmet of the hope of salvation. Very speaking of ethical behavior. Or in James 4, 7, we're told to resist the devil by obeying God, by being humble, by being repentant. Again, all actions that we are responsible to do. 1 Peter 5, 8 
It says to resist being strong in faith. Again, that is our own trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These all point to character. They all point to behavior, to my response, to what I am called to do. And so the meaning of truth here in regards to girding my loin with truth is that I need to remind myself, I need to recognize that I'm I'm to be faithful. I am to have integrity. I am to consider and remember to be steadfast. This is further reinforced when we consider the Old Testament sister passage that I mentioned earlier in Isaiah 11.5, where it speaks of the Messiah as having righteousness as his belt about his loins, and that faithfulness would be the belt about his waist. The idea here is that the Messiah will be characterized by godly behavior, by faithfulness, by steadfastness, by a commitment. He was trustworthy. He could be counted on. What's interesting is if you look at the Greek translation of that verse and the Septuagint, and the word that's used for faithfulness there, the Greek word used for faithfulness is translated as truth. It's the same word that Paul used in Ephesians 6. So I think it's intentional on Paul's part as he is mimicking what Isaiah said in the Greek translation of of what Isaiah said. So when Paul says, gird your loins with truth, he's saying, put on an attitude of faithfulness. Be steadfast in the Lord. Have a commitment. And remember your commitment to not give up living for Christ no matter what. You must have that girded about yourself. Now again, in saying all this, we have to remember, there's nothing we can do apart from God's work in us, right? not saying this is a, hey, you need to gut this out, believer. Yeah, God did some stuff. Now it's on you. No, there's a continual interaction, right? With God's enabling and his strengthening and his grace and our responsibility. I can only be steadfast because of the firm truth of God's word. I can only be faithful to God's truth because his truth is faithful. My steadfastness and character and commitment to Christ, it is rooted in the rock solid nature and character of God's word and his work in me. They're interrelated. This first piece of armor, the first necessary protection to resist against the devil's attacks is to have the conviction that you believe that you will follow Christ no matter what and that it is God's truth that you believe. You must constantly remind yourself of this commitment. And it is a faithfulness, it is a steadfastness that is rooted in the gospel and it is made available through the gospel. Just as the Messiah wrapped his loins in faithfulness, so too must we. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Right? Any, any wavering in commitment... Any lack of faithfulness is a crack that the devil can use to undermine our resolve. And that's why Christ did not make it easy to believe. If you remember his various instruction and his his call to commitment, he did not make it easy, right? What did he say about you must, to follow him, to be his disciple, you must deny yourself daily, take up what? Knitting? Your cross, right? What did he mean by that? It's hard Even more than that, he's saying a person who had their cross was taking up was a person going to their death. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to give up even your life. Perhaps literally, but definitely on a daily basis. Your life is to be mine because I bought it. I purchased it. I redeemed you. So if you want to be my disciple, I want full commitment. 
This isn't a half-hearted temporary arrangement. This is no try out Jesus and see if he works. I hear that sometimes when people are sharing the gospel. Just try him out and see how it feels. That's like, is Jesus out handing out free samples? I mean, here, just try this. It's a free sample, no obligation. See if it works. That's not it at all. It's a commitment for life. He's called us for good. It is free, a free grace of Christ, but it costs you everything. Jesus did not want a half-hearted commitment. He's not giving out samples. He says, if you to be my disciple, and it is a glorious place to be, if you are to do that, then you must deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Remember the rich young ruler who came to him? What did he tell him at the end of the day? Sell everything you've got and follow me. Give it all up. Give it all up to have me, Jesus said. And that dedication, we have to remind ourselves of that commitment. That's what Paul's getting at here. Gird your loins for act with truth so that you would understand and recognize and remember your commitment. What was it when you came to Christ? You gave him your life, right? You committed to be faithful to him, to keep your promise, to worship and follow him all the rest of your days, to turn from your sin, place your trust in Jesus. Paul's saying here, remind yourselves of that commitment. Be faithful. Be genuine. Brothers and sisters, are you in this for the long haul? Have you given up all for Christ? Is your commitment real? Is it genuine? Are you steadfast? Are you being faithful to your promise? We must gird our loins with truth. I mean, again, think about a soldier when he goes out to battle. If he is not tightening up everything around him, he's not prepared. And a soldier who did not have resolve, a soldier that did not understand his commitment, a soldier that didn't recognize what he was fighting for would be easily taken out. And in the same way for us, we have to remember what we are fighting for, who we are fighting for. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for you and in whom you can be strengthened. But if you lose sight of that, and if you just see this as a daily grind, or, yeah, I'll get to God when I have time, or you're done. There's a kink in your armor right there. A nice open spot for an arrow to pierce. Be faithful. Tighten your resolve to follow Jesus, to remember that no matter what, I will follow Him, no matter what comes. Meditate on that commitment. Memorize passages like Mark 8, 34, Luke 9, 23 that just remind us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. After girding your loins with truth, Paul gives the second piece of armor, which we won't have time to get into in detail this morning, but there's one aspect of it I do want to point out. It's the breastplate of righteousness he talks about. And a lot of times when we think of the Roman soldier in a breastplate, we think of that big metal piece, right, that goes around their torso. You know, in the, it's in the, all the movies, right? So it's got to be true. <laughs> what? You don't think so? Actually, that, that piece was typically worn by Roman generals or the emperor. Uh, the common soldier, the typical Roman, Roman legionary soldier, would have a, another form of a breastplate. And it was these metal, uh, these iron strips that would go around him and they'd be riveted together to leather. And this leather would also be used to tie it all and bind it up together. And there'd be shoulder pieces also that would be tied down. It's actually a, a fairly involved and complicated set of armor. Effective, but not easy to put on. And m- many times because of the intricacies involved and the need for it to be tight and snug, soldiers would need to help one another with that armor. 
And in the same way, we need to recognize our responsibility towards one another in considering the armor of God. Because, you know, I, I rarely hear this talked about in regards to the armor. It's often treated as this individual thing where you need to have your piece of armor on. You need to worry about putting your own armor on so that you are protected in the battle. It's just this idea, again, of my responsibility individually before God. And it's me and God. And this is the thing I need to focus on. But if, again, there's anything we've learned from Ephesians, it is that Christianity is not about the individual. It is that Christianity is not a solo adventure. We're united as a body. We are one army together, not a bunch of individual soldiers out doing their own thing, coming up with their own plan and strategy, fighting on their own. Any military strategist will tell you, if that's the way you approach a war, you're not going to make it very far. In the same way, we're in this together. We need to help one another gird our loins with truth. We need to come alongside one another and help with this breastplate of righteousness that needs to be put on. Hebrews 3.13 says, Come alongside one another, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, if, if we were marching in a battle together and the, the battle was raging in front of us and we we're moving forward together as an army and you looked over next to you and you saw the soldier next to you, his armor was loose or he was missing some pieces of armor, what would you do? What would you do? Would you say, oh, well, he'll learn his lesson for next time? Or would you not want to embarrass him by, hey, buddy, you're missing a piece of your breastplate there. You know, I'm not going to tell him. I don't want to embarrass him. He'd feel bad. Or would you ignore it thinking, I don't have time to help him right now. The battle's right in front of me. And if I try to help this guy, I might be at risk. So he's on his own. Or would you cross your fingers and just hope he survives? You get the point, right? We're not going to do that. Brothers and sisters, be involved in one another's lives. Be involved in one another's lives. Don't just make sure your armor is taken care of. Look to the person next to you and in front of you and the soldier behind you. We are an army together. You have the responsibility to help one another. And don't think the day won't come where your armor is going to need to be adjusted or put on. You need someone who can come alongside you when they see your commitment wavering. You need someone who can exhort you to keep going, to encourage you when things get difficult, when you are weary you need someone who can pray for you, who knows what's going on in your life. Not those token little prayer. Yeah, you know, just pray that I would uh, just be a better husband. That's lame. That's a place to start. Hey, pray, you know, I have been snapping at my wife. I've been impatient with her. I've been yelling at my kids. And I know it's not right. Can you please pray that I would be patient? Confess a little bit. Be a little transparent. You need someone who can point out sin in your life. You need someone who can show you how to better wear your armor. Let's help one another in this battle we face. Amen? We're not in a competition. This isn't an individual thing. This is a war. This is not every man for himself. We are in God's army together, and together we face a powerful foe, and he's looking for openings in the line. Calvary, I don't think we're there yet. I just want to be honest with you. I don't think we're at the level of commitment and understanding that we really do need each other. I don't think we're there. 
I don't think we understand we are soldiers in one army. We are all members of one family. We are all part of one body. That's the way it is. We need to recognize and live that way. May the Lord continue to work in us and may He use, help us understand His armor and the fact that we need to be helping each other in this to move us to spend more time together, to move us to be transparent with one another. Let's not fake this anymore. Let's not play any games with this at all. Be open and honest with where things are, you are at with the Lord. All right? Let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you died that we may live. That, Lord, you fought the enemy and won. You lived a perfect life. You gave in to none of his temptations. You did not, Lord, give up when things became difficult. That you, you were faithful. You wore the belt of truth to the end, all the way to the cross. You girded yourself. Faithfulness was about your waist. Righteousness was about your loins. And we are so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you faithful to obey your father and that out of love for him and for us you made a way that we may know you we thank you for the armor that you have given and that you empower us to use may we be faithful to put it on may we gird ourselves with truth may we put on the breastplate of righteousness the shield of faith the helmet of salvation carry the sword of the spirit bind our feet with readiness understanding the gospel of your peace lord help us to be more involved in one another's lives so that Calvary would be a place that truly reflects a unified army dedicated to advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.